episode of the 21st Folio. On today's episode, we're going to talk about the Stratford Festival of Ontario, Canada, both. Production of Coriolanus, directed by the Quebecois director Robert Lepage. On our show today are two guests, Mariangela Rowe. Hi, I'm Mariangela Rowe. I'm a contributing editor at The Seventh Row, and you can find me at Lapsed Victorian on Twitter. And Craig Rattan. Hello, I'm Craig Rattan, a theater enthusiast and uh, sometime politico who's on Twitter at C-R-U-T, C-R-U-T. And I'm Alex Heaney. I'm the host and also the editor-in-chief of Seventh Row. And you can find me on Twitter at BWestCineast. That's B-W-E-S-T-C-I-N-E-A-S-T-E. We want to give you a bit of a background on this production because it's a bit of a weird one. So this production is directed by Robert Lepage, who is a famous Quebecois theater director who is known for using filmed productions and doing his own set design. And so people often think of his theater as sort of trying to bring in elements of film into theater. He has a history of doing Shakespeare productions. Um, He did a famous production of Hamlet years ago, I think 10, 20 years ago, um, and has done other Shakespeare's since then. He actually did um, a Coriolanus in French back in 1990. And right now, in the last couple of months, he's been in the midst of a big controversy because of his racist casting in his plays. So he was intending to put on this musical about slave music called Slav at the Montreal Jazz Festival. Did not involve any black people. It got cancelled on a whole lot of bad press. And he has a production of Canada planned. But I don't think it has been cancelled. Oh, it got cancelled too. Which was an indigenous play without indigenous people. Um, so anyway, he's not doing any more press for Coriolanus. And he's actually, he's never done anything for Stratford before. Um, so this is sort of Stratford's attempt to import a big name director. But he has been doing this kind of freelancing now a lot in the last year. So Lepage has done a lot of work with big name companies outside of Canada. Like he's put on productions for the Metropolitan Opera before, and he's worked with Sadler's Wells, which is the primarily dance oriented theater. But this is the year that it's like all of the grand dames of Canadian arts and culture decided that they wanted a Robert Lepage production. So he did a production, he remounted a production at the COC of Stravinsky's Nightingales, which I believe had been put on before some years ago, but it's like, it's been a while. So he did that at the COC and then he did frame by frame a production with the National Ballet of Canada. And now he's doing a production at Stratford and it's his first time at the Stratford Festival, which is not really a festival known for uh, taking production risks. Or being too big on auteurist productions. Like generally when you think about the history of productions at Stratford, you have no idea who directed them. And although we generally often talk about productions with respect to what who the actor was, I think for a lot of other companies, certainly in England, I know who the director was for a lot of things. And that the director was a big part of the draw. Even on Broadway too. The, the one exception I would put there in Stratford's, or the one footnote I'd put for Stratford's production history is with Des McEnough, who was the preceding artistic director, who had previously directed at numerous other sort of major theater companies. And I think there were a number of productions where he brought some of his specific flash to the stage. He was a very big proponent of, uh, of sort of stagecraft and using all the technical wizardry at his disposal. Uh, so he would be the only, the only exception I would sort of make to that rule. That uh, that he might have put the director a bit ahead of uh, simply the actors on the on the stage, right? And I guess and Stratford sort of has their house style, which we talked about or will be talking about. I'm not sure what order these things are being released in. Um, in our podcast on Lear, which was a production of King Lear starring Shauna McKenna as a female Lear, which was directed by Graham Abbey, who plays Ophidius in this Coriolanus. And it's sort of more of an auteur production, but still uses things about, like, Stratford House style, which is usually fairly empty stage and, like, quite actor-centric. And 
I mean, being Canada, we have, like, five actor stars, but a lot of productions are built around them, and, like, they did King Lear at Stratford a couple of years ago where it was just Confior saying lines with a fan of actors around him in a circle. Exaggerating a little, not a lot. So, I mean, the context for thinking about this sort of what's happening with Stratford and no tourism is maybe worth mentioning what's happening at the Shaw Festival, which is sort of its competing close to Toronto, out of town festival, which is usually sent around George Bernard Shaw and does not do Shakespeare. They tend to do like other modern plays. And not that Shakespeare is a modern play that came out wrong. Anyway, what happened with Shaw Festival is they just brought in a new artistic director this year um, who is a Brit, Tim Carroll, who's actually known for a lot of his Shakespeare productions. We covered his Twelfth Night in an earlier episode with The Twelfth Night with Mark Rylance. Um, So he's a bit of sort of theater auteur, and they're actually doing Henry V, directed by him, this season. Okay, I think that's most of the context we need for the people involved in the play. The other thing is, Coriolanus is a, is a play that is not done very often. Craig, want to give us a brief rundown of Stratford and it's not doing Coriolanus much? Absolutely. So Stratford prides itself on presenting all of the works in Shakespeare's canon. Obviously, some are in higher rotation than others. Uh, it's been uh, quite a long time since Stratford lasted a production of Coriolanus. The most recent one was in 2006, starring, uh, once again, Colm Fior. That one was presented on their main stage as one of the, the signature plays of the season and was a, uh, I, would, I would argue, much more conventional production for Stratford, similar to their house style, presented very, very plainly on stage. And before that... Oh, tell us what the, what the main stage looks like for people who've never been to Stratford. So the Stratford Festival is a uh, thrust stage that looks, sort of thrusts out almost a, in an octagon shape. So the sort of sided corners are cut off. There are two voms that come in underneath and the audience is seated on about, uh, the stage thrusts out, audience is in a ring around it uh, up to about 180 degrees. And there are sort of voms that, that cross it and the, the stage comes up in a number of levels with a balcony at the back. So uh, if that didn't give the picture in your mind, I would recommend Googling the image of the stage, and that should help. And so so Stratford's done Coriolanus about once a decade. Uh, the other productions, uh, most recent productions, were in 1997, and before that, 1981. So there's been sort of a relatively recent, sort of hard to know whether this is just it's now the once in a decade, so it's coming back. But there have been a few Coriolanus productions in the last five, ten years. <laughs> so, I mean, I guess one of the big big ones would be the film that Ray Fiennes directed and starred in and was brilliant. We did an episode on it. And then a couple of years after that, there was the Tom Hiddleston production at the Donmar, directed by uh, Josie Rourke. And that was also on our Ray Fiennes episode. Uh, last year, the Royal Shakespeare Company did a production of Coriolanus, and they cast a black actor as Coriolanus, and that is something that Stratford has done this year um, with their Coriolanus. So this particular Coriolanus, it's a modern at the Stratford Festival that we're talking about today, the Robert Lepage one. Um, it's a modern dress production. Most of the actors are relative unknowns, I think, aside from Graham Abbey is kind of the biggest star don't know if he's an actual star i guess he's like a star if you're into canadian theater and because he has his own shakespeare company he plays ophidius and the production borrows pretty heavily from the ray fines film at moments it was like oh look they did that first in the fines film and they did it better too yeah and so this one is at the avon theater which is a proscenium stage is it small it's smaller than the festival right craig yeah yep it's about a thousand seats versus the eighteen hundred seats of the festival. Okay, and it also actually had like a much a fairly younger audience compared to the normal Stratford audience, which is like eighty year olds bust in from Buffalo. Slight exaggeration, not really though. Uh, any other background you need on this production, or have we kind of covered it? Well, we could say that they're also doing doing Julius Caesar this season, and they're. Usually Julius Caesar and Coriolanus are seen as companion plays, but they don't seem to have done anything to link those two in this case. And it, 
and do we need to go over the like basic plot? Did we do that and I missed it? Oh, I didn't go over the basic plot because I just assume everyone's gonna Google it. But maybe Emma is right that nobody knows Coriolanus. You can't. Maybe we shouldn't make. This I same. can do it. Okay, you go. Go for it. Okay, um, we are in Rome. Caius. Uh, and Rome is experiencing civil unrest. The price of grain is extremely high, and the populace is agitating against the Senate to provide them with grain at our own price. Enter Caius Martius, uh, war hero and aristocrat, and who is unashamedly classist. After he wins a war victory, his mother wants him to achieve the office of consul. To do that, he needs the will of the people. Uh, Coriolanus is unable to kowtow to the people, gets himself banished, and cries, I banish you! Basically is like, you can't fire me, I quit! Quits Rome, and is like, so there guys, I'm going to go join our hated enemy and march on Rome and lead their army. That's Coriolanus. Oh, you're not gonna tell us the ending. Well, I guess I could, fine. (laughs) Are we gonna spoil this 400 year old play? (laughs) I suppose. <laughs> so Coriolanus's opponent is Alphidius, the head of the Volskis. And it seems that these two have been military rivals for some time, although Coriolanus has always come out the better. When Coriolanus comes to Alphidius and says, essentially, I've been booted out of Rome and would like your help getting revenge, Alphidius welcomes Coriolanus into his home and eventually finds that Coriolanus is now supplanting him as the head of the Volscian army. When Coriolanus finally marches on Rome to conquer his own city from the outside, he is deaf to petitions from almost everybody until a petition from his wife and his mother finally causes him to bend and sign a truce between Vols- between Antium and Rome. Antium is the home of the Volskis. This truce is unacceptable to the Volskis, and they kill Coriolanus. And that's where the play ends. And I guess the other thing we should say, just as far as a history production thing, is that Coriolanus and Ophidius are often a big sort of centerpiece of the play. Like, they're set up as rivals and as foils, and there's a history of people starting out by playing Ophidius and then later playing Coriolanus in their careers. And so how this production is kind of in line with that and kind of upends that at the same time, I guess, will be something we talk about when we get into that relationship. So I think because this production is what's kind of both both sort of the reason to see it and what's radical about it are kind of the same thing, which is Robert Lepage's direction and specifically how he brings in projections and how he sort of tries to make this theater production very film-like is a pretty looms large on this and I think probably had more thought go into it than how to interpret the play. We're going to give you the rundown of how that worked and discuss that and then we'll get into all of the character dynamics. Okay. Emily, do you want to give us sort of some background on like what did this play look like? Like I'm not even sure how to begin. So the best way to describe it is that this play was like a live action movie. It was Cinematic in almost every sense of the word. It had a title sequence. Like, to it, begin with, yes, it, it had a... It literally had a filmed credit sequence. It had a cold open, and then it literally had a filmed credit sequence. And throughout the play, Lepage sort of eschewed traditional theater devices, like normal-looking painted sets, in favor of projections. And he chose to... Instead of having a static stage that the audience could, where the audience could look at any part of this larger scene, he chose to have both parts of the stage move so that the audience would have to look at a particular thing, or close the field of view so that the audience could only see a particular part of the stage. What I mean by this is, in one early scene, he had two, he was presenting two offices, and he had, against a dark background, what appeared to be these two sort of floating boxes slowly slide in from the wing. So it was almost like you were watching a pan in a movie, except that this was literally physical sets moving onto onto the stage. 
And he also did the opposite of that in the sense that he would recreate this sort of iris effect that you get in cinema where you have the the field of vision zooms down to a pinpoint before winking out in a transition to a next scene. He actually had some sort of blackout curtains or something. I don't know how he did this. I don't know how he did it is, is my huge question. I, a lot of it really did feel like stage magic because I have no idea how they did a lot of this stuff. Yes. But basically, you'd be looking at the stage and everything would be normal. And then suddenly, dark edges would come in almost like the aspect ratio was being changed in front of your eyes until you could only see a sort of shoebox-sized amount of the original scene, and the rest of the stage was black. Yeah. And then that would wink out and there would be a transition. And different scenes had different aspect ratios? Like, that's really the only way to talk about it? Like, I'm not sure what they did exactly. I guess they had some kind of blackout curtains or something, but there were some scenes where just the height of the field of vision was different heights. Like, sometimes it was really short. Like, it might only be torso height. And then other times it was, you know, human height, and other times it was quite tall. Um, and then they would also change the width, too, where, so sometimes you had these, like, cinemascope wide and uh, short. Yeah. <laughs> and other times you would have, you know, like, academy ratio. It was kind of, it was bizarre. And And in order to accomplish this, they moved all the action on the stage back. So they... I think only once in for the for the child uh, war scene did they actually use the apron of the stage that jutted out past the proscenium. Everything else was actually raised up from the floor of the stage by several feet, I think, to accomplish this and, and all the technical wizardry they needed underneath. So it really was, the action was really taking place floating in a smaller contained space, sometimes very tightly framed, uh, further back and higher up than one would normally see uh, actually take place on the stage. Right, and then they really prepare you for this with the opening because they, they, they open on a talk radio show. You're forgetting the head. Oh right, shit! Oh god. Yeah. Deliberately. So apparently, I like. I mean, I can't. I was kind of like, I know what's coming here. I got really worried when I saw that head. <laughs> so the. The first scene of the play, as Alex says, is this talk radio show. But the opening that the audience sees is, as we're filing into the cinema, we see projected onto a backdrop this sort of vaguely Roman-looking set of columns, like we're inside a building. And on a table in front of us is a large bust of labeled Coriolanus. And we're all sort of filing in, meandering, bust is there, being a bust. Lights dim, and... Surprise! The bust begins to speak. The face on this object is actually a projection of the actor playing Coriolanus. And the bust gives us a litany of Coriolanus's choice insults, of which there are many. And I'm not entirely sure what this was supposed to accomplish other than to wow the audience and to give us a sense of what was coming. Because this seems very much of the past. And then we move to the cold open first scene which is very much set in modern day. Yeah, okay, so I really didn't like this because it sort of sets Coriolanus up as the storyteller and the truth teller. I'm not sure I'd go so far as to say truth teller. I think it also sort of sets it up as kind of a fable, which that I don't have necessarily a problem with. I just have this problem with centering Coriolanus's voice because I think a big thing of the play is that it's about Coriolanus's downfall and to sort of memorialize him with a statue where he gets to, you know, frame the story seems backwards. I will be honest that in watching it, I really didn't listen to the words that were coming out. It, like, it was very disjointed. From a review I read afterwards, it was pieced together as various lines Coriolanus said throughout the play being compiled together that were predominantly insults towards the general populace. So based on, based on that summary, if it is accurate... I, I don't really feel like it glamorizes Coriolanus. Uh, it certainly does center him in terms of following his story, but it, it doesn't. It, it does give him grandeur, but I wouldn't say it necessarily makes him sympathetic. Yeah, like it has Coriolanus insulting the audience, right? 
and it strongly identifies the audience with the pleb figures in the play. Okay, so it's just, like, completely inconsistent with the rest of the production. Well, I have one thing about the head, and then we can move on to the actual production. But, like, the head works if your production has a strong Coriolanus. (laughs) This production did not live up to that requirement. Nope. Actually, I think that's part, maybe that's probably the problem with the head, is that because it starts with the head, you assume that this production is centering Coriolanus and it's about Coriolanus. And then I didn't really realize until after the intermission that this production was not very interested in Coriolanus himself. It was very interested in Robert Lepage. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and Ophidius and his flames. Well, but not interested in Ophidius uh, until the second act. But Right, we'll that's true. Yes, which is a little bit odd, because then the second act opens and you're like, who the hell is this guy? You know? Why do we care about him now? Uh, exactly. Yeah. Uh, do we want to talk about some of the design choices that they that they make, some of the sets? Yes. So we reference that it's a uh, modern dress production, and uh, uh, some of the choices that Lepage makes are very deliberate, I think, in an attempt to to drive that point home. So instead of being in a marketplace uh, at the opening, hearing complaints about the price of bread and about and about Coriolanus's arrogant behavior, it takes place in a talk radio studio on a phone-in show. The elite settings in Rome, where uh, Coriolanus and his uh, and the tributes and the other senators gather, include a very fancy restaurant. And a uh, another very uh, shishi and fancy bar, and then the uh, scenes that take place in discussions amongst Coriolanus, as well as and his consorts, including Cominius, as well as the scenes with the uh, tribunes of the people, are in adjoining offices that Angela discussed earlier that slide across the stage, and so it, it's two. Uh, very small offices next to each other in in what looks like sort of a a generic office building. That, to say something nice about this play that we're probably going to spend the rest of the episode not saying nice things about. I have, like, I have some nice things to say, because I think there's (laughs) a lot of interesting ideas. They're just all in poets. Okay. I look forward to hearing these. I don't have a lot of nice things to say. I think that on the whole, this production was very thoughtless about the central relationships of the yeah, people involved. I agree. But one nice thing that I thought was very good and gave me hope at the start was the offices. Because Coriolanus presents, they seem to be in a generic office building. And not Coriolanus, Lepage presents Menenius's office as right next to the office of the tribunes. And right, and they're two identical boxes that are right next to each other. Yes, and the tribunes are literally moving into those offices while we're watching the first scene between Menenius and Coriolanus, which is a very nice way of signaling to the audience that, oh, the tribunes are a new office. They, ha- they don't have an established power base yet, you know? They're trying to grapple for legitimacy, but they're also essentially on the same footing as Menenius. They're all political operators fighting for the same political territory. Yes, I agree with all of that. But I also thought that setting them up as equals with offices next to each other was a major problem. Because, and this is something about how they, like the numbers of actors, is that they they really set, basically in every other production, and I think in the text too, the tribunes are very much outnumbered by the patricians. There's just two of them, and there's a ton of patricians, and the patricians basically hold the power, in part just because they know everybody. And so the tribunes are, you know, really trying to figure out how to wield power when they feel kind of powerless. Even though they do hold, like, equal footing, they're still often treated as lesser. And I think... By setting up Menenius's one office and the Tribunes as the next, it sets them up as though they're at equal footing and they're kind of like rivals. And the flip side to this is I, the thing that I think is 
good about this is by setting them up as the flip side, then you do a much better job of setting up the idea of warring factions within the country compared to the country that's also at war. I think that's often lost in Coriolanus productions. Like, you see those two things, but you don't see them very clearly. Like, you don't see it clearly in the way that you do in Hamlet, say, where you're like, God, they're squabbling, but Fortinbras is coming. They keep warning us that Fortinbras is coming. Maybe they should stop killing each other. Whereas I think by putting them on that equal footing, by giving them those two side-by-side offices, it sets that up nicely as those warring factions, but I also think it it messes with the power dynamic because it suggests that the Tribunes have more power and influence than they do. The first scene, the talk radio show, I think is worse for that, though, because on the talk radio show, Menenius is facing off against one of the Tribunes. And yes. all of the callers are plebs. And it yes. suggests that Menenius is, in fact, courting the favor of the plebeians. Yeah. No, that scene really, 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 really pissed me off for all those reasons. Uh, just on the point of the power dynamic between the tribunes and the uh, the senators and those who hold the power. I mean, I think you're right, Alex. They do, but they do, do that. But I actually think it was an intentional decision to scale down the scope in, in some of the few interviews Lepage did before he uh, recorded controversy and stopped talking to any media. He talked about sort of focusing on the the discussion happening about media and social media, but because of that, the scope of the actors that are involved narrows significantly. And so although there isn't the same sort of outnumbering of the patricians and senators versus the tribunes, we also lose the the mob that backs up the tribunes. And there is something that's that's lost there. The the general populace, they've they've lost that numbers game on them. And it really turns into a game of elite battles and outsmarting each other. So there's other scenes where the tribunes are doing live uh, television hits uh, to try and get their message out and, and sway the, the point of public uh, opinion. And actually, I, I, I viewed it as an intentional choice to show the tribunes getting quite accustomed to the benefits of elite life, particularly in the settings chosen for some of the later scenes you see the tribunes hobnobbing at the same fancy restaurant as uh, Volumina. You see the Volumnia. sorry, uh, Volumnia. The tribute's hobnobbing at the same fancy restaurant as Volumnia. You see uh, them uh, hanging out at the the same fancy bar as some of the other elite and patricians. And so, uh, to me, it felt like a good choice. Yes, hanging out with Menenius and uh, uh, Cominius. Yeah, I think how they deal with the tribune's ascent is really good, and their development. So I, I agree with that. I think one of the issues, though, with losing the mob and also with these offices is it doesn't give Coriolanus kind of a um, a large group of plebes to treat as like ants at his feet. They're always individuals. And you also never get the sense of a man who genuinely will face a mob and go, I personally have the power to cow you. Yeah. and And to just not treat... Yeah, and both that he feels like he can conquer them and that he doesn't feel like they are worthy of his attention as individuals. Because throughout this production, in attempts to sort of make things modern, you kind of lose this idea of Coriolanus treating them as, you know, bugs under his shoe. Like, even in that opening scene... They're about to go to a meeting, I guess, and Coriolanus drops by the Tribune's office to taunt them individually in person, and I just don't... I think Coriolanus sees the Tribunes as so insignificant, he wouldn't take a moment to taunt them. They're, like, too beneath him. And then later when he's on the campaign trail, and they do this really nice thing of creating this campaign trail where he's knocking on doors, which feels very modern. But the flip side is it forces him to deal with each of those people whose voices he's after as individuals. And that's like, Coriolanus doesn't do that. That's part of why he fails, because he doesn't think they're worthy of that. And it also, I mean, it it diminishes the anti-populist message of the play yeah 
I mean, Coriolanus is in, in many ways a really bleak play. It says that you can't trust anybody, basically. But part of what's powerful about the play is that you have... The play sets up this pitched battle between essentially a starving rabble and a small elite with whom the play seems to have a lot of sympathy. Mm-hmm. But there's an acknowledgement that for perfunctory reasons, the elite has to sometimes throw a bone to the rabble and give them some semblance of having influence. And it should be really demeaning for Coriolanus to be in the marketplace showing off his wounds. Right. And I think the the other the thing, too, is that generally, I mean, what happens in the play is basically it's, it's the plebes that get Coriolanus um, banished. And so they bring on his wrath. Like, they don't take him seriously enough, so they get him banished. And then that's what causes the potential attack. So there is really this sort of, be careful what kind of power you give these people, uh, because they don't know what they're doing, on the one hand. And on the other hand, there's also this, hey, just because you're good at the military doesn't mean you're going to be a good politician. Mm -hmm, Very much so. And I think... I mean, just thinking about how other productions deal with this, I mean, in the the Jonathan Kent production from 2000, which starred Ray Fiennes, you really, I mean, there is a scene where the plebes are having a discussion while they're cleaning the floor of the Senate. Ooh, wow. And then as soon as the patricians show up, they leave. And so you really get this sense of them below. Um, and then also there's this sort of, um, kind of stage within a stage on, um, stage right. And Menenius often stands on there and the other patricians stand on there whenever they're going to address the plebes who are like on the ground. Like they really, and there's a bunch of the plebes and a much smaller number of the patricians and you really get this, this sense of that. And then, you know, in, in the Refine's film, we get to know the plebes a little bit more. Like there are certain individuals that really stand out and get screen time, but you still see Coriolanus at the marketplace where there are tons and tons of people and you can pawing at him, pawing at him and you compare him there where he just kind of hates them to when he's at war and he goes and he sees this old man who gives him water and he's like, Oh, I have to deal with you as an individual person. And that freaks him out. You don't have those differences here. Although one thing that you just said, Alex, did remind me about the uh, like the plebeians cleaning the, the Senate. It's not quite the same here, but there was one scene where you have two plebes as uh, waiters or servers for a fancy dinner who are having a side discussion before they have to go in and feed the uh, feed and serve the the nobles. Right, but I guess the flip side of that, too, is, I mean, if this is a play about people who, you know, know grain at a fair price, they also are only showing plebes who are employed. Yep. That's not totally true. When Coriolanus goes door-to-door, um, definitely the old guy with the walker. Like, that guy's not going anywhere. So, to back up and explain a little bit. What is usually presented as a marketplace scene where Coriolanus exposes the wounds he's gotten for his country as evidence that he should be consul to a bunch of faceless plebs. In this production gets turned into Coriolanus going door to door and speaking to three individual sets of people. The second of those individuals is an old guy with a walker who basically tells it like it is. He says, you've been a, like you've, you've been a scourge to our enemies and a rod to our friends, i.e. you are a military weapon that has threatened everyone around you including people who have been good to us and also that guy doesn't look like he's employed not employed but he is housed i guessed yes also it seemed like a kind of swanky street so oh really i thought it seemed kind of not good i don't know like i thought the woman the deaf woman seemed well off and he liked her and then the couple at the beginning seemed very uh white trash he didn't like them yes yeah. But they all also seem to live on the same street, which is confusing. One of those things where maybe mixing theater with an overly like that would be fine if it was just regular theater, but then they have this high fidelity rejection, so then you expect it to be real, like a movie, and then it's 
like you're supposed to assume that it's like theater. Nah, there can be some mixed income neighborhoods, you know. <laughs> In the process of gentrifying, you know, Rome's changing all the time. Fair enough. Okay. Should we talk about Rome versus Antium? So there's often some kind of contrast made in productions between Rome, home of Coriolanus, and Antium, home of the Volskis, the rivals of Coriolanus. And what this con- what this contrast looks like sort of depends on what the production is trying to do. The Donmar Warehouse production, which had a very bare stage, didn't do any anything to distinguish the two locations in terms of context and instead use character to do all the heavy lifting there. But this production presents Rome as relatively swanky, even the kind of rundown neighborhood where Coriolanus goes to canvas, as Alex said, looks like not that bad. Whereas Antium, with one exception, is presented as like a caricature of an inner city. The first scene we see in Antium is an entirely unnecessary bathhouse scene, where Ophidius and the rest of Antium's leadership are like lounging in the steam room in towels, having this conversation about the war. Which is also a weird choice for a modern dress production. I mean, I do give some yes. points for uh, throwing some bare torso in there, you know, but uh, the logic of the scene did leave something to be desired. And like, kudos to Graham Abbey that, you know, he's like not afraid to go there. And it... He looks good with his shirt off. You're here. As a sidebar, Coriolanus productions generally flirt to some degree with homoeroticism, and the degree to which productions lean into that dynamic between Coriolanus and Alphidius varies. This production could not figure out where it wanted to land. <laughs> uh, it seemed yeah. pretty homoerotic to me. Yeah, I thought so. I mean... Intermittently homoerotic, man. The Fines production knew, like, it was going there. The fine, it was on, like, the these people are secret life partners and joined twin souls express. Right. Whereas... I mean, this is one-sided, I think. But, I mean, you did have Ophidius literally straddling Coriolanus while he tells him he's more excited about Coriolanus is possessive (laughs) arrival than he was about his wedding night with his wife. So this is the gayest line in a fairly homoerotic play. Uh But at the same time, I never felt any intimacy between the two men, and we almost never see them interact on stage. That's true. It's really weird. Yeah. Especially, and then the decision to kill him on a bed, and then hold hold the hand of his corpse afterwards. I did feel uh, some moments of the intimacy between Ophidius and Coriolanus, uh, it, it, but you're right. I think they did cut a lot of material between them, or the or the backstory and the buildup of that relationship. But when they were together in Antium, both when Coriolanus first is exiled and and shows up uh, begging mercy, is a key one, and then. I mean, if you want to lean into the homoeroticism, the ambush uh, by the Volsky of Coriolanus at the end takes place in Ophidius' bedroom. So clearly Coriolanus felt pretty comfortable heading there. Where he had just thrown out his boy toy. Exactly. Oh, was that Ophidius' bedroom? I thought it was like a hotel room. I thought it was. I'm not sure because I also thought it was a hotel room. It's unclear. Definitely he was having some coitus there with a little boy. I mean, not a... Well, I came out wrong. Young man. The lieutenant The slender young man to Graham Abbey's, like, barrel-chested, you know, man-man. Like, there's there was a visual dynamic that they were going for here. Yeah. Which is a roundabout way of saying the bathhouse scene seemed both out of place with the rest of the depictions of Antium, which was as essentially a borderline slum. Like you see buildings with windows broken and graffiti all over the place and garbage bags, and it seems like no one is taking care of this place, like they live there. And then you are in this very swanky bathhouse. And also a weirdly homoerotic gesture? Like, bathhouses are associated, at least in the modern popular imagination, 
with a certain amount of, you know, gay sex. Yeah. And when we think about Roman bathhouses, we think of a lot of men in the altogether together. Right. And also, if you take, like, the scenes in the Hollow Crown, the the original, the Henrietta Hollow Crown. Oh, my God. There are bathhouse <laughs> scenes in that. And if you go to text from the Drunken Crown, it's almost all blowjob jokes. And it's almost all captions of the scenes in the bathhouse. Just to, like, as an understanding of how this is viewed in the modern. And that scene was wonderful fan service. I was very pleased with that about a fan service. Yeah, but the other thing that's super weird about that having that as a the bathhouse be the first time we see Ant, um, we see Ophidius, is it doesn't really set him up as a threat. Mm-hmm. He's in a towel. It doesn't A it doesn't set him up as a threat, and B, they're sitting around in their bath towels talking about, oh, I guess we're gonna get invaded by Caius Marcius and crew. They don't seem very worried, so it also doesn't really set up Caius Martius because he is not yet Caius Martius Coriolanus. Coriolanus. <laughs> Sorry, just had to chant it. Um, <laughs> it really is extremely chantable. It is extremely chantable. Um, he's he's not yet gotten his his nickname, so it doesn't really set him up as a threat, and it also doesn't really set them up as rivals because there's nothing that's parallel in how we're seeing them. You compare that with the Fines film, which opens, I think, on Ophidius sharpening his knife. And watching Coriolanus on TV. Yeah. Like, it's clear. It's like... You know that these two are rivals from minute one, and that that's going to and be And obsessed centered. with each other. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Whereas Ophidius's obsession with Coriolanus comes out of left field after intermission. Ophidius himself comes out of left field. That's true. Yep. Because even in that bathhouse scene, you don't really get the sense of him as the leader. Everybody's in power. No, he's. I mean, the costume does not differentiate him from anybody else, and you have no idea who the rest of the people in this bathhouse are. They're just dudes. Yeah, you have, well, you know, no idea who he is either, unless you happen to be a person who knows the play and knows Graham Abbey and is like, I know Graham Abbey is Ophidius, and he is saying Ophidius's lines. Ergo, otherwise, what the hell is going on? Well, then the second time we meet Ophidius is in the one battle scene they choose to include in the opening act. Let's... Craig, please describe this. <laughs> All right. Uh, as a, a scene transition one break before, we see Coriolanus' son walk across the stage, dragging a cart and dropping, uh, placing child soldiers down on the... Toy soldiers! Toy soldiers! Toy soldiers! Child... <laughs> Ooh, that'd be a little different, wouldn't it? Uh, <laughs> so an earlier scene, transition, we see Coriolanus' son rolling a cart, placing toy soldiers on the ground, uh, lining them up. All is well and good. He goes off stage. Uh, in the next scene, uh, a scene later, we see a, a giant screen fills the stage, and we realize that a camera has been mounted on a toy truck that Coriolanus' son is wheeling back down and uh, is playing out the battle that occurs in uh, Coriol. Coriol? Coriolis. Coriolis. Uh, I'm really great on these Roman names. The battle that occurs in Coriolis, taking the position of Caius Martius, gunning down Ola the Volsci, and it... After shooting down all of the toy soldiers, the camera sees at the end, uh, zooms in on the face of uh, Phidias, who is lurking uh, in the wing. He's a huge, like, he's yeah. he's taking up the entire screen of the projection. Yeah, looms incredibly large, and then there is some shouting and hollering. The camera sort of zooms in, and we, we fade to black, and, uh, and then cut to uh, the celebration of the Romans afterwards when they have uh, won the battle. So that's, uh, as opposed to in the in the text of the play, there's a number of scenes that build on each other of of showing these various battles. Part of this is part of this fight, and they've been entirely condensed. The text's been cut completely, condensed into this sort of depiction, very stylized depiction of the war. And they have a big fight between, like, Coriolanus and Ophidius have a big fight, and they have a dramatic dialogue exchange, and that has been cut. Yes, like. And the upshot of this, quite apart from failing to set up the Coriolanus-Ophidius relationship, is that we never see Coriolanus, the war hero, fight. 
Like the point of how Caius Martius gets the name Coriolanus is that he took a city single-handed. And by single-handed, we mean one dude. Right. So, I mean, I, I agree. The production does temper this with almost an idea. <laughs> so, two things. One is that when he actually gets the name Coriolanus in this production, it's just bestowed on him in the locker room as they're recovering from battle. It, it, and it's, it, it is given to him... Did I say restored? I meant bestowed. I need sleep. Words, words, words. Uh, <laughs> it's just given to him as a nickname almost. And usually it's a, it's, even if it's done on the battlefield or wherever it's, it happens to be done in other productions, it's done as a ceremonial thing. Like you are being rechristened as Coriolanus. Whereas here they're just kind of like, hey, we're going to call you Coriolanus now which has a different it doesn't have the same sort of formality or importance that's sort of in line with the fact that you don't see him conquering the city the other thing that is sort of in line with the fact that you don't see him conquering the city is that plays into the idea of him as sort of a toy soldier and how that's kind of how his mother sees him and how everybody else sees him that he just kind of like goes off to war and then he comes back with all these great scars and they sort of see the consequences of his actions, but they don't really see, they have no idea what actually going to war means and what that means as far as his own power. So then it makes, it sort of makes sense that then they don't anticipate and it puts us in the position, I guess that's a way in which it puts us in the position of the plebes is that we don't really anticipate that he's the kind of threat that he is because we haven't seen him in battle. We've only seen him come home as the hero. But it also means that we don't see him as believable. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's a huge problem. <laughs> don't get me wrong. It's a, I think it's a huge mistake because they don't complete that thought. But it is sort of consistent and it is almost an idea that could have gone somewhere. It just doesn't. But go ahead and explain why it is bad because it is. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you if you guys don't mind, I'd like to take this moment to look at that scene in particular, because I think we all had things we wanted to say about that scene and the way in which it gestures at and ultimately fails the text. Mm. Because in this play, the scene in which Coriolanus receives the honors, Coriolanus is in the bathroom of some sort of institutional facility surrounded by his men. It's a locker room. They're clearly getting cleaned off after battle. And he, a war leader, is just hanging out with his men, which I suppose is... No, he doesn't, though. No, 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 because now I remember that that's one of the two... Like, there's no wall, but they use the two boxes set, and there's a clear divide between... On on the right side is where the... um, And the set itself is different. On the right side, there are lockers, and that's where the regular soldiers are and they're sitting beaten on a bench and on the left side is Coriolanus with uh, Cominius there's one other um, but there's one other random soldier dude in the box with Coriolanus oh okay yeah and, and yeah. it's like an adjoined washroom is sort of what the set looks like right, right. but Coriolanus is at the sink washroom part and they're at the locker room mm -hmm. part so the effect is General Cominius who's the nominal head of the army walks through a locker room and into a washroom while Coriolanus is washing his face after battle Tells him, you're going to get this honor. Coriolanus, we only see him as weak. Like in this scene, he's so wounded that he actually staggers and falls and needs to be supported. And it's incredibly sympathetic to Coriolanus in a way that, A, I don't think the text is. And this is a text that's very friendly to Coriolanus. And B, in a way that makes us go, oh, poor Coriolanus, when we should be going, oh, shit, this is a terrifying war machine. Yep. So, I mean, one of, I mean, you haven't specifically said part of how it makes us sympathetic towards him, but there's this, so he tells this story about an old, I think it's an old man, who's a peasant, um, who was, he's one of the Volskis and he helped Coriolanus. He gave him shelter. Um, and so Coriolanus wants, you know, when they're figuring out what to do with the Volskis and meeting out and punishment. That's the word I'm looking for. Um, <laughs> he wants this guy spared. 
And Comenius is like, sure, sure, we will. Um, what's his name? And Coriolanus goes, oh, oops, I don't remember. And usually that's played as, oh, so you're so happy with this guy, but you couldn't even be bothered to figure out his name. You are a jerk face. And in this production, Coriolanus stumbles from a... I thought he was stumbling from injury. Everybody else seems to think he was stumbling from PTSD. But he stumbles as he's saying this line, so, like, you can forgive him for not saying the name, because maybe he'll come up with it later. It's just, right now, he's stumbling. The production does seem to depict Coriolanus as carrying deeper wounds, not just the physical wounds that seem to be referenced in the text to show them to the people, but also some sort of psychological wounds. And that's where I think the PTSD comes from in this scene. Uh, I agree that it undercuts uh, what would seem to be a, a very quick and effective way of showing that Coriolanus doesn't actually care that much about individual people, even those he who have directly helped him. But I think there is some consistency in the production in showing Coriolanus as a as a as a sympathetic wounded character, which uh, is a problematic interpretation. But again, at least one that's consistent. Two comments. One, that scene is particularly it's it's even more usually it's portrayed as even more of a knife twist for Coriolanus because Cominius says you were you were so happy with you you can have anything you want you can have all this treasure and Coriolanus is like. No, 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 I don't want any treasure. I don't want any material rewards. I just want the freedom for this one guy. And you're like, oh, you are a nice guy. Or at least you have a you have a human portion to you. You know, you're incorruptible. And you, the one thing you want is the freedom for a man who helped you. And then he's like, oh, I don't remember his name. And so it's like the scene takes you up and, and makes you feel so much estimation for Coriolanus and then drops you. But as to the PTSD portion, Craig, I don't know that I agree. I mean, I agree that this Coriolanus was a man who, you know, had temper tantrums and bursts of rage, but I didn't feel that he was damaged. I just felt that he was emotionally incontinent. And perhaps this is, I mean, Alex can talk about this, but perhaps it suffers in comparison to the Rafe Fiennes Coriolanus, where Rafe Fiennes really, really was a traumatized war machine who was a shell of a man. Yes, but to be fair, what? doesn't suffer in comparison very fine i thought the tom hiddleston coriolanus was fabulous until i watched it next to the ray fines coriolanus and thus began my tom hiddleston hatred that's the end of this episode of the 21st folio to keep up with the latest episodes subscribe to the 21st folio podcast on itunes for show notes and more information about the podcast, please visit 7th-row.com. That's S-E-V-E-N-T-H-R-O-W.com.